morning, church. Nothing like teens gone wild, right? For Jesus. Uh, I tell you what, I'm super proud of our youth here at WFR. I was here yesterday afternoon and uh, happened to catch them decorating doors over for the kids today. And I just thought, man, what a blessing to be able to have teenagers that love the Lord and are willing to give their lives for him at this particular age. Um, I've told you guys, yeah, you can give them a round of applause. <clears throat> I've told you guys before that um, two of my greatest regrets in life uh, happened when I was a teenager. Uh, for me, it was about 14 is when it started. And I first turned my back on my first love, Jesus Christ. I was right here. I was in this church. I was a double secret agent hiding out on the third row, but I didn't love the Lord. And I regret that to this day. I gave the evil one my best years. That's why I love seeing my teenagers up on the screen, especially the blessing of one of them being my granddaughter. And the second thing I did was I turned my back on my second love, and that was Lisa. But we worked it out. And God is good in spite of everything. God does great things when his youth give their heart to him. Because that's our next generation, right? So it's a blessing to be here today. Thank you, WFR Youth, Brandon, Christian, Grant, Caitlin, everybody else that works with our kids. We really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's working toward our future. And speaking of uh, WFR teens, Luke Spillers, if you would come up, he's going to read our scripture for us today. It says here, uh, oh, Luke's gotten tall. Um <laughs> says here, Luke, that you play basketball and uh, also do track at OCS. Is that true? I'm not surprised. Very tall. Um, what it does not say here is that you are the prince of West Monroe. Did you know that you were the prince of West Monroe? Do you know why you're the prince of West Monroe? Because your dad, Ryan Spillers, right there, is the king of West Monroe. Did you know he was the king of West Monroe? Do you know why he's the king of West Monroe? Because he fixed Arkansas Road. Let's give it up for the man that fixed Arkansas Road. In my opinion, that makes him the king of West Monroe. He should get the keys to the city and therefore you, young Luke, are the prince of West Monroe. So scratch, scratch, scratch. Matthew 13, 54 through 57 says, Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where does this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. Thank you, Luke. Appreciate it, Luke. There he goes. The fresh prince of West Monroe. They took offense at him. They took offense at him. The Bible says he had wisdom. He had miraculous power. He had authority over demons. He had everything that the people in his hometown should have been looking for. Right? And yet they took offense at him. So this is where we're going to end. But I wanted to begin there. This phrase, they took offense at him in Greek, 
is the word is scandalizo, which we get our word scandalize from, to be offended to the point of going astray, to fall away, to have zero, no faith. Isn't that something that you could see something so clear in front of you that was so obvious? And then you really just couldn't believe it because it was just too familiar. I mean, didn't you know his brothers and sisters? Was his dad a carpenter? In spite of everything he had done, they had no faith. How did we get to this point? Well, we started with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus basically described what this new kingdom life was going to look like. And it was going to be quite different from what everybody had been living up until this point. As Mike talked about last week, Jesus established his authority to be this new king of this new kingdom by producing miracles, casting out demons. He sent out his 12 on this mission. Now we're already in the next generation of leadership. And today in Matthew 11 through 13, we're going to get to a turning point of sorts. Because now the opposition is going to begin to rise up in what Jesus is here to do. You know, I've always thought that people all over, different backgrounds, different beliefs, everything, they will love you. Especially if you're a famous person, they'll love you until they get to know you. And then a lot of people won't like you at all. They'll find out what your beliefs are. They'll find out what you're not going to back away from. They're going to find out what you're passionate about. And especially in our world today, there then will be division. Lisa and I, last weekend, were up in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And uh, I felt like we had parachuted in behind enemy lines uh, just by the people I was meeting. You can appreciate that, right, brother? And, uh, but although the, the folks that invited us up, they were so excited because we came. And it wasn't a huge group of people. And there was church building after church building after church building, and they were built. They were building 17-something and 16-something, and they were amazing to look at. But they had no people. And it reminded me so much of Europe. They've become museums. People drive by them. They marvel at how beautiful they are in the architecture. And look at this. And yet they're cold and empty for the most part. They called themselves the frozen chosen in Massachusetts. And so I went up to warm them up a little bit, you know, bring a little bit of that southern love. And we were doing a podcast in a tavern the first night we got there. And so the guy who had invited us up, he had advertised it on his Facebook. And so he started getting some response to it that wasn't so great. One particular woman said, why? And she said some things that I can't repeat. But then she said, why in the world would anybody invite a homophobic, woman-hating racist to speak in our community? Talking about me. (laughs) And I thought, this woman doesn't even know me. And yet somehow she has formed quite the opinion of me probably based on someone else in my family, but nevertheless. So she said she was going to bring some of her friends to our podcast and have a protest. So when Lisa and I, you know, we prayed in the parking lot and we said, here we go. But I never saw anybody. 
I guess she didn't quite have the nerve to follow through. But I thought to myself, she doesn't know. If she had only listened to what we talked about, I'm not homophobic. I love every single sinner out there. I want everyone to know about God's grace and love and truth. Every single one. I certainly don't hate women because I'm married to quite the woman. And in fact, our conversation in that night on the podcast was about just what love to a woman looks like, especially when things go south. And I'm no racist either because I don't see skin color. I see the cross for all. Some of my closest friends, brothers and sisters are people of color. In fact, I worship a man of color. His name is Jesus Christ. What a blessing we have to not be bound by the titles that people give us. Well, this is what happened to Jesus. We're ultimately heading to the watershed moment of Matthew. When we get to Matthew 16, because there he's going to fully announce his intentions, exactly what he came here to do. And it's a powerful moment. In fact, it's so powerful that Mike and I decided we needed a powerful speaker here to be able to convey that message. So in two weeks on November the 7th, one Phil Robertson is returning to west side of the river to share with us. So be sure and, uh, and be here for that. Those of you online, uh, invite people to look. He's, he's been, we, we asked him two weeks ago, so every podcast now he's preaching that sermon that he's going to preach here in two weeks. So trust me, by the time he gets here, he is going to be frothing and ready to roll, uh, which ought to be great. Yeah, that deserves a round of applause. So we're going to talk about this uh, opposition today in chapter 11 through 13. And we're going to look at it through the, through the two prisms that it's presented. The first one is opposition through doubt. Doubt is, it's been around since the beginning. It was Satan's first tool in his toolbox to use against humanity was doubt. You remember the first words recorded from him? Did God really say? Just, just a little doubt, just a little bit. I mean, God had given a pretty simple command to Adam and Eve. One thing, any tree you want to eat from, fine. Don't eat from that tree. Did God really say? Doubt. That doubt convinced Eve and then Adam to then go against what God had told them to do. Now, doubt's twin brother is fear. And there's two kind of fears. On the podcast, Jace talks about FOMO. That's fear of missing out. That's one fear. And that was the fear here. Because Eve looked at it and she thought about it and she had that doubt now and she thought, well, you know, if I don't eat it, what am I going to miss? That's FOMO, the fear of missing out. What's amazing is the other part of fear is FOMU, and that's the fear of messing up. And guess what immediately happened once she ate the fruit and then Adam followed? They realized they messed up. And what's the first emotion they had? Fear. Well, I'm naked, I was afraid, they ran from God. You see what happens with doubt? It immediately puts in this distance, this fear, this idea, and once that comes to full fruition, then destruction. 
Look what it did in the family. Destruction. Doubt is a killer. Now, there's going to be four different doubters, group of doubters, in this Matthew 11 through 13. And they really show you the two ends of the spectrum. And some doubt hurts a little more than others, to be honest with you. The first doubter was none other than John the Baptist, starting in Matthew chapter 11. When John, verse 2, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? What? We're talking about the guy, remember, that baptized Jesus? That saw what looked like a dove come down on his center? That heard the voice, this is my son and whom I love? You're talking about that guy? Are you the one? Doubt. Jesus said, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed. He's repeating everything he's been doing to all the doubters in front of him. He says, go back and tell him. And then he says something scary to me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John was stumbling. Look, I'm not throwing rocks at him. He's one of the greatest prophets that's ever lived on the planet. He was a strong man. He was in prison because he wasn't afraid to speak truth to authority. And yet in that moment, he wasn't sure. And it was very near the end. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 14, he'd gone. Lost his head. And yet he said, are you the one? Now, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say it here. He goes on to really praise and tell how great of a man John is and was. But I would think that would have to hurt a little. I mean, they're cousins. He's the forerunner. He's the one that said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the first guy to get it. And now he doubted. It's scary, but at the same time, it's comforting to me. Because if John the Baptist struggled, then... My struggle is understandable. So he gives them a little light and loving rebuke. Don't, don't stumble. Just remember why you're here. Of course, Jesus' own family doubted him. That was in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. Jesus was still talking to the crowd. His mother and brother stood outside waiting to speak to him. Someone said, your mother and brother are standing outside waiting to speak to you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Ouch. Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, that sounds pretty harsh. But you've got to remember, we know from John 7 to verse 5, John said, even his own brothers did not believe him. They thought he was a public figure and gave him some good PR advice. Even your own family can doubt. Some of you may have experienced that. His hometown that Luke read about in Matthew 13, 54 through 57, lack of faith, didn't believe him. Man. You know, and I've noticed that sometimes familiarity can produce some things. It produces jealousy, contempt. Some of them probably even hoped he failed and something bad happened to him, which did. 
doubters. The last group were the people in all the cities that Jesus had been to, 11, verse 20 through 24. Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of those miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, he said. Out of all the things, if you were living on the earth when Jesus was there, the one thing you don't want to hear is woe to you, right? I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Anybody remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Not good. Look how quickly doubt led to destruction. Do you see what I'm talking about with doubt? It's insidious. And Satan uses it against the people of God all the time. Did God really say? Don't let doubt and fear take root in your heart. Because trust me, destruction is where it's headed. It's what the evil one does. The second thing that he uses other than doubt is division. And again, this is an old Satan classic. It happened in the garden. Right after the doubt, what happened? I Anybody but me. So now we have a division with the Almighty, kicked out of the garden. We've got a division within the first husband and the first wife. We've got division with the first children because one murders another one. We've got division with all of humanity because it only took three chapters to finally get to the point where every thought was violence and death. So much so that God said, I wish I had never made people and there was a massive reboot with eight people how long did it take to get from doubt to division to destruction three chapters you see how insidious this is so there were three divisive tactics that are used mainly by the pharisees in our context of matthew 11 through 13 but i see some of those still used today And isn't it interesting that Satan used this religious and spiritual authority of the day to be his chief tactician of division against Jesus? The first thing they did was they attacked truth and purpose. They did that by attacking his stance on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, was created by the Almighty for people to rest. That was the purpose. That was the truth of it. The Pharisees had taken this thing and turned it into their ability to make rules that are what you could do and what you couldn't do. So they see the disciples walking along. They're hungry. They're picking some grain. They're eating it. They say, what are they? Look at, they're not, ah, uh-uh, bunch of Karens. No. Sorry, Karens of real, that that's your name now, but it's just out there. Then... He healed a man, and they said, what are you doing? You can't heal on the Sabbath. Think about how stupid that is. But that's where they had come to. See, you attack truth. More importantly, you attack the purpose of the truth. And why it was ever put there to begin with. Mark said it this way. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, if the man, Jesus, who is God... He had the idea of the Sabbath, and then he's doing something on the Sabbath. It's never wrong because he's the one that did it. But they didn't believe. So they tried to divide. And think about it. Some poor saps are sitting there listening. They're not sure which way to go. And they think, well, you know, that's right. 
It is the Sabbath. See what dividers do by creating doubt for other people? So, you attack truth and you attract purpose. Second thing you do is you demean what you can't debate or defend. You just demean. Jesus is casting out demons and they have no answer for that. How could he do that if he wasn't who he said he was? So they came up with the brilliant deduction in demeaning him that well, he must be the devil and he's casting out his own people or his own beings. So Jesus eviscerates the argument in verse 25 through 37 of chapter 12. But they said, you know when they, why they said that? Because the people said, could this be the son of David? Uh-oh, we got some truth seekers here. Maybe? Could be? No. No way. He's the devil himself. That's why some woman that's never met me called me a homophobic racist who hates women. Because you demean what you are not willing to debate or defend. Third thing they did was they blamed God for their own lack of belief and faith. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What? You just called him a demon. You said he's a lawbreaker. Why do you need another sign? I thought a lot about that. You know why? Because they're saying, we don't believe in you, but it's your fault. You need to do more because I don't believe you. Blame God. How many times do you see this today? People who have no faith, agnostic, atheist, whatever. People maybe that grew up in a church and then left it bitter. Oh, this God stuff. And then they take off and they blame God about where they are. It's been around a long time to blame God. So Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Uh-oh. What did Jonah say? Repent or be destroyed. That was his message. And then he gives them a little hint. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's going to happen. Destruction. You know, the saddest thing about this text, Matthew, where we are now, is that most of these people are going to be destroyed without faith. For most of them, it's going to happen quite a few years, about 30, 40 years in the future, when Jerusalem is decimated. And those that didn't believe are going to be destroyed. And it all started back here with doubt and with being divided. The evil one came to kill, steal, and destroy. That's his purpose. So how did Jesus deal with all this opposition of doubt, division, and destruction? Well, he did three things. It starts in chapter 13. First thing he did was he accepted the limitation of the human heart. Now, this is hard for us, and it was hard for him. We know the Bible tells us God wants everybody to be saved, everybody to come to repentance. So do I. 
I don't want one person lost. I mean, the person that I see is the most vile, repulsive person in the world. I still want them to come to Christ because they have value. It's there. He created them. But the human heart is what it is. That's why I think he starts out with the parable of sower in Matthew 13. Basically, in that parable, he paints a picture where three quarters of people are going to say, nope, not going to do it. Now, preachers like me and Mike and others, we're going to we want to preach the positive about the one heart. Right. But the sad truth is most people are going to reject it. And he was very clear about that. The human heart is what it is. He talks about one heart just having nothing. I don't believe. I don't care about that. I don't know anything about that. Snatched away. He talks about one heart that has no root system. It kind of thinks it might be a good idea. And the first time trouble comes, I'm out of here. I didn't sign up for this. Third heart comes along and it just can't give up its grip on the world. Money matters too much. Possessions matter too much. Whatever my status And there's probably a battle for a while, and then finally you just cross over to the dark side. Only one, it says, is good soil that embraces, produces fruit, and helps other people. Sometimes you get to feel like, man, are we seem to be the only ones left? I know the feeling. But remember, Jesus said clearly, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow the one that leads to eternal life. Now, we used to think, people say, well, that we're proud that it's narrow. I'm not. I want that as many people on the road as possible. But I have to accept the limitations of the human heart. People are going to believe or they're not. Because what happens is that takes us to the second thing that Jesus did. He didn't water down his message to try to appeal to as many people as possible. The, the disciples said, why are you speaking in parables? What does that mean? Why would they ask that question? What they're saying is, we can't even understand what you're talking about. Why would you do this? And Jesus says, and I'm just paraphrasing the whole answer, is that a calloused heart refuses to see or hear. But the truth is still the truth. It saddens me to see what a lot of my fellow friends out there in preaching and pastors are doing to water down the message of the gospel. They begin to embrace whatever the thing is of the day. Social justice, equity, America first even. There's people that much more want to talk about that. It's not America first. It's Jesus first. That's what saves us and redeems us. So any of these messages out on the spectrum, the gospel message still has to be out front. You can't get caught up in that. Jesus didn't water it down. He made it where you had to seek to find it. And we have to do the same thing today. We can't get into this race of attractionalism to try to hope we can get to somebody and really not speak truth. Plenty of prosperity gospel people out there. You embrace God and you'll have everything you ever wanted. That's not true. Except for salvation if that's what you want. But you may have a hard road. But you'll be in heaven I can promise you that. Jesus didn't water down his message. And then the third thing is he never stopped telling the stories. The Bible says in Matthew 13, 34, the prophecy in Psalm 78 was fulfilled. I will open my mouth. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. 
You see, with Jesus, there was no backing up, no giving up, and no shutting up. And that's the way I feel about who I am today in him. I don't back off of that. WFR, our church, has a great spiritual DNA implanted in us by the Almighty God through the ones who first had a vision for what we could do here that the gospel of Jesus needed to be proclaimed. That's the heart of who we are. We should never change that. And we keep telling the stories. That's what impacts people. I want to close with this. Back in, I skipped this on purpose. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. When all this opposition's going on and all this difficulty, Jesus has this amazing little, I don't know what you'd call it, devotional. Right in the middle of all this. And it's not even clear exactly who he's addressing. Part of me thinks he was saying it for his own benefit as well as anybody else's. I want to read it to you because this really is the heart of my message today. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, all this opposition, doubting, division, destruction. Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and you've revealed them to little children. I love it. He just went back and said, you know, it's just a simple thing. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. The right thing is usually the simple thing. And I've told you this before, just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple. All things have been committed to be by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And, good news for us, those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. He said, I am Him, and I am you, and we are here to save you. Man, does that not encourage you? We know God because we know the Son, because He's revealed Himself to us. So in spite of all the doubt and destruction and division that's in our world, we know that, you and I. And then he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. You think about it, burdened from failure and then weary from carrying that burden. Trying to do it on your own, trying to make a difference. Feeling like a failure. And I will give you rest. Rest from what? Producing fruit? Nope. Rest from trying to carry the burden on your own. You don't have to be weary anymore. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I love it. Jesus says, everything out there is difficult, it's dark, it's heavy, but in me it's light. I bring you peace of mind, the greatest quality you can have, a clear conscience, an ability to lay your head on your pillow at night and say, thank you, Lord, I can't wait for tomorrow. 
Isn't that so much better? Do you remember when you were maybe going through a particularly difficult time? I can remember it. One of those kind of difficulties where you lay your head on your pillow and the last thing you think about before you go to sleep is whatever you're dealing with. Maybe it's loss of someone you love. Maybe it's a marital breakdown. Maybe it's a kid that just won't respond. Maybe it's a relationship that someone you love and trusted and now they've hurt you and betrayed you. The last thing you thought about. And then when you woke up the next morning, it was the first thing that popped into your brain. You remember those times? They're tough, aren't they? But that's when you have to put that burden to the only place that it can be carried to give you peace. If you didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you would have no one to carry that burden. And that's what destroys so many lives, so many relationships. Trust me, those hearts that never turn to Christ are burdened. But we know how to unburden them. And that's the message of Jesus Christ for us. So today, if you're burdened, if you're out watching somewhere across the fruited plains, or you're here, today's the day when you can give that to the Almighty. If you've had doubts, and we have them, we go through periods, it's okay. Just say, I believe. Today I believe, and I don't want to go down that road to destruction. Today is the day to embrace the goodness of Jesus. If you have a need, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing. Mm-hmm.